Welcome back to the Integral Stages series of dialogues on new education, a foundational topic which, if we get right, could untangle the world not of the 21st century, and if we get it wrong, will preside over the radical degradation of selves, cultures, natures, and systems. I'm Layman Pascal, and today it is my great pleasure to discuss the pop-up school and the general situation of education with a woman who probably thinks podcast introductions undermine themselves by perpetuating the malign metaphysics of modernity. Yes, it's the maven of the integral diaspora, the anti-Schmachtenberger, voice of the voiceless, the omnidirectional horse priestess herself. It's Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Layman. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> that was good. That was good. I was expecting nothing less. Bonnie, what the hell is a pop-up school? Okay, so the pop-up school, I would say, is a reiteration of different things I've been doing in the last 20 years or so. Uh, you know, I don't know, I started years ago, many people uh, remember the Magellan courses. Uh, at the time, I was also teaching part-time for the Graduate Institute. And then I started teaching full-time for the Graduate Institute and kind of closed the Magellan courses. And then recently, um, the Graduate Institute has two kind of bread and butter courses and their master's courses for people. Uh, it's called Learning and Thinking, and it's for teachers to get like their master's courses. And it's a holistic nursing course. And COVID really kind of hit them financially very hard because the two professions that aren't going to get master's degrees during COVID are teachers and nurses. And my program is in consciousness studies and transpersonal psychology. And we're kind of like the research, like we set a lot of the guidelines and the, the new framework for the other course, courses, but we're a small group. And uh, so a couple of years ago, due to COVID and some other changes, it was clear that the, the school was going to close. It's actually not closing. It, it got The programs got per, purchased by Salem University and there's gonna be some redesign, but I um, realized that I've been, I've been teaching less and less instead of three cohorts a year. I was having one cohort a year and there'd been a lot of talk about different, um, yeah, different initiatives in, in classes. And I thought that what I would try to do, like my master's course, it's very intensive. It's, it's two years or more for some people. Um, the way it's designed is you have 30, over a weekend, you have 30 hour intensives. And they used to be done, you know, in real life. And they're really immersions. And so the question is, how could I try to translate some of the transformational practices that we did in the course online really lower the threshold for for adopting you know the threshold for be, for participating is quite low it's just a substack newsletter um it's not really a newsletter it's a campus there's a lot of uh, programs there but to really lower the threshold for action but keep the transformative uh process quite high and also to you know, I, I, I talk about doing stuff orthogonal to modernity or the modern mind. So instead of like talking about the possibility of um, having a metaphysics where there, it, that expresses the continuity of mind and life, everything we do just assumes the continuity of mind and life. We try to just go there instead of talk about these transitions. 
And for me, it's been an interesting design problem because, because it's online and how do you do transformative embodied education online? But I'm very fortunate because uh, the caliber of the participants is very high. So you can name drop Gebster and Bohm and Jendlin and Christopher Alexander and all of these, these, and Wilbur, of course, and all of these categories or fields already make meaning for people. And we're trying not to have that conversation, um, but to have a, a completely different kind of conversation. And uh, yeah, so the, the, most of the people that I work with are themselves educators or, um, or facilitators or, uh, you know, um, some kind of mentorship. So they take some of what we do in this program and then kind of expand it into their own programs. We called it the pop-up school because even from the beginning, I didn't want to have like a contradiction between the principles of transformative education, which should be fun and light and engaging, and then call it something like, you know, transformative practices of the awakened self or something, you know, I wanted it. And then, of course, uh, in Zach Stein's book, um, I think he mentions the concept of the school as like pop-up stores. And I really liked, I really liked get, giving that impression, you know, like we talk about popping in or popping out and this notion of having it be a lively place for serious conversations, but, but yeah, to have it still have this uh, notion of learning as play, as community, as fun, as curiosity. Yeah, so that's why it's called the pop-up school and hopefully has some flavor of, <laughs> of that. So what kind of feedback are you hearing from participants, both in terms of content and also in terms of the format? Yeah, so in terms of the experience people are having, it's been way beyond uh, what I could have hoped for. People are reporting like they actually are living in a different reality. And, and, and you know, we work with like not think of, thinking of like linear cause and effect. And so we work with this thing called spherology, where you imagine yourself in this omnidirectional numinous causal experience with all of life. And we do these practices. And like this one woman is, is you know, people are like, wow. And they had just these ordinary walks they take or ordinary conversations they have they feel like they're 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 they've entered into a different relationship with with relationships and with objects and things and nature that there's a, a lot less <clears throat> interpretation between them and the things or a lot less interpretation between them and the conversations they have we did a lot on perception for example we we talked about one of the exercises we did was we all have moved into away from like a substance metaphysics and all into this notion of becoming you know so it's a very sophisticated group so they're all into becoming and yet i said but you can't be a becoming for yourself because you're your own you're your own frame of reference so so yes everything is a being and a becoming but what is it to be? 
What is it to be? At every moment, you're a being, which is still a word. And so we talked about, uh, we did some guided meditation and some exercises and some conversations. And we talked about the experience of having, you know, here you are and having things in the world lining up and all you have to do, oh, there, that's that's something I can use, or there, that's something I can use. Instead of like, I still have to take another course, I'm still in becoming mode, you know, be, I'll never get there. And this was extraordinary for people. Actually, this one woman, she's like, it, it totally transformed my tennis game. Because she's like, I'm not running after the ball. Like, she's just there. And the ball is coming to her. Like, it's like all of space and time is coming to me. And I have a lot of time to react and respond. And so it, and it's, so they've been really effective, you know, like kind of turning, turning these, these ways that we can talk about things into experiences that we can enter into. Yeah. And, and then cross pollinating and, 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 uh, uh, seeing where people go with it is really is really fun for me, you know. So, people found it to be quite productive of insights and and new insights, you know, like things that are beyond even like what a lot of people are talking about. You know, it's orthogonal to uh, where the trajectory of their inquiry had been going. So. Um, the content is still, the design is still, I would say, funky. We got, we did a festival that had a lot of concurrent things happening. And, you know, I know you guys know this, working with the Zoom invitations and the res registrations and getting the videos out in time, you know, it was only me. So that was a little clunky. And trying to design this coming year so it's really quite quite easy you know like off the shelf just like an off the shelf course you can you can take so the design is still a little yeah a little clunky i'm intrigued by this uh being and becoming thing because when i was a kid all the texts from the 20th century that i grew up reading were all really hot on transferring ourselves from a static notion to a more dynamic becoming model but then that in itself becomes the assumed background ethos and you have to be able to flip that over right i in the back of my mind i'm always like verb is a noun so i remind myself not to lean too much into one or the other but how much of like that was really useful for them i think and for a lot of people to move out of a static to a becoming model but you also have to be able to interrogate and second guess and flip that becoming model into a new appreciation of being. So how much of what you're thinking of as transformational education is flipping the assumed perspective? Yes. So I think that obviously the point is, is to understand that, you know, I like to say, Ken Wilber said, you know, everybody's true, but partial. I like to say, Everybody's wholly true in a partial context, right? Because you can experience your truth as wholly true. And I think the end goal is eventually you get the pattern. First, I, I, was, I was a being, but I was kind of a static being. And, 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 and I had too much emphasis on concrete things in a concrete way. And then I got into becoming and all this like kind of psychoactive stuff. And 
then I noticed that there's in this hall of mirrors, there's, there's no end to that. So now we're going to shape shift not into the first, you know, go backwards, but we're going to shape shift and say that, well, yes, the world is a becoming, but you can't be a becoming for yourself. What does that framing, what does that mental model switch? And so eventually you want to make people into um, what Gebser would call a perspectival, that when they enter in a conversation or they enter in an interpretation of reality, they first we have to realize, well, what mental model, what framework am I entering into? A becoming framework, a being framework? Maybe I need a substance permanent framework. I mean, these are all choices. And then the question, of course, is then if I'm able to do that, then where am I now? You know, what, what? and so eventually that's an insight. You know, people, you move people through these transformations, but the insight is that None of these contexts are there as the final ending, you know. We also did the same thing, for example, with you hear a lot of people say, let's get into the unknowing or the not knowing, you know. And in a certain stage, we understand that that you want to release your addiction to knowing. But then I will say, but that's not really how it works. Like not know mind is supposed to make you feel powerful. Not like, oh, let's just get into the not knowing. You know, you got people like, oh, let's just get into the not knowing. And that's not what not knowing mind is. It, the, the reality of not knowing mind is all of a sudden you're empowered. You don't know, but now you have the will to act because you're not hung up by not knowing mind. So there's a lot of these kind of like late transformations. But the, the thing I want to say here is there's, there's, I have people from 20 years old to set maybe a close to 70 years old. And the older group have been through many of these transformations, but the younger group, they move really fast. They're like, yeah, of course. I don't think that way. I want to think this way. You know, there seems to be an acceleration, uh, their potential to, to hold many, many frames at the same time and feel at choice with them. There's some kind of like accelerating acceleration happening and I think part of it is because you know it's so easy to surf the internet and get a download of Jenlin or a download of Chris you know it's so easy to pick up a variety of information whereas when we were growing up I mean to stumble across Christopher Alexander or Wilbur and you had to find the books you had to read the books you had to digest the excerpts like you know it was a lot of work whereas now you can go you can hear you you know you guys talking on your podcast or somebody talking on somebody else's podcast and then go and do a google search and get a little quick article so i think that given that that's happening you know what are the kind of schools that can respond to that and facilitate the momentum not say this is this is what you have to learn, you know? So I guess I, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, yeah. Good enough. <laughs> There's some elements of this are general. Like most people have access to these online resources and can, uh, you know, come across thinkers in multimedia ways right now and get up to speed on things quickly. And some of them might be particular. Like when you're looking at 
what you call high caliber participants. And they're coming in, they're well-informed, they're, they're very fast in their ability to adapt to metacontextual shape-shifting. A lot of them have an educational orientation. Um, how much of the principles that you're using do you think are generalizable, universal for everyone and for education generally? And how much are specifically for the types of people that are attracted to this material? Yeah, so I would say a lot of the exercises you could you could do, I don't know if you saw, we did a totem, you know, and we put the mountain not moving, that was at my back, and I can feel, you know, these, these games can be played with children. You're not going to get the same kind of discourse afterwards, but you're going to have the experience of, wow, you know, it's kind of like taking Lakoff and Johnson in reverse. I'm saying... Here's a way to relate to the mountain and I can put it in my body. And in fact, it grows organically the other way. We have an experience of the mountain. We feel the, the steadiness of our body or our back against the rock. And then we have this sense of, of eternal, let's say an, a platonic idea of eternal, you know? And so a lot of these things, we're trying to recreate the, original experience of the embodiment of words, let's say, or the embodiment of meaning. But you could do that with children. And, and there is one man who's got a small group of children that he's playing, the, you know, they're doing the totem and, it, and it's fun. And, and you don't get the same kind of discourse, but it's a ritual that has meaning, you know, and, and it's not meant to mean, you know, we're not trying to create the clan of the totem we built. We're just trying to be playful and, and, and yeah, and to recreate meaning from emb in, embodied and, and collective, collective ways. So I would say that most of the, you know, we, we did collective storytelling where you, you looked at images that a student of mine had drawn and you put them in a certain order with a partner and everybody puts them in a different order, tells a different story. You could, you could do that with children, you know? A lot of the actual exercises are simple that way because we're trying to, to do transformative education through embodied participation. So uh, when we did the embodiment course, we worked online with color games that you'd have to arrange colors and you had to do it fast. If you tried to think about it, you couldn't do it. And, and pretty soon you notice you just move the thing and you get this. And then you would say, well, what happened there? Oh, well, when I wasn't thinking about it, I realized a single loop learning between me and the outcome I could like tie into that. And of course, you know, you could do that also with, with children. So, uh, so I think that the methodology, the approach we're trying to take, not in all cases, is fairly simple exercises. And certainly even the models, which are quite complex in a certain way, uh, can be pared down to, yeah, even at a, uh, maybe a middle school or high, high school level. But that's something else that I'm working with, if you want to uh, st stay with me here for a second, because I I've been doing a lot of research on early childhood development. And the kind of 
you know, there's this really great books by Alison Gopner. And she talks about how, like in, in the first three years of life or six years of life, the child has to solve some really hard scientific problems, like object constancy. <laughs> Okay, so Alison Gopnik's work, she talks about all the kind of metacognitive moves the child has to make to organize self, other, and world, and to figure out that objects stay in a certain place, or to figure out that if you're on the other side of the mountain, you can't see from where I'm looking, or to figure out that objects follow a trajectory, even when the trajectory is hidden, all to figure out how to speak, to figure out how to walk. All these things are highly complex metacognitive moves a child makes. And of course, she gets at it because she devises the exercises, the experiments that elicit that this is happening. And the reason why it's hard to get at is because you can't have a metacognitive conversation with a child. And so what what what's part of the design of my work with the Graduate Institute in the pop-up school is, well, where did that talent go? I would say that it's really hard for people to get at metacognitive insights, metacognitive realizations through language. But where did that, that potential that's, you know, a, an evolutionary potential in the core self I don't think that goes away, but how do we how do we speak to that? How do we exercise that without having to build second, third, fourth order uh, meta theoretical language, let's say, in a person? Because it seems like that wasn't necessary uh, when we were really young. So why is that necessary now? And 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 this is an ongoing question you know, part of it is when I watch people do my horse workshops and I see them have tremendous insights into their own, let's say, psychic uh, stuckness or, or, oh, that's the way the, the world actually works. There's nothing, there's no metacognitive or metatheoretical language going on. So why is that effective? Why are those, how come those things are effective? And so I'm trying to, to figure out what the, the secret sauce is in at this kind of elegantly complex, but like low level of, of complicatedness. I mean, there's not a lot, yeah, a lot, not a lot going on. So, so I think that would be, you know, I keep saying to my people in the school, you know, someday we'll have a meta conversation about what are we doing here? But if we have that conversation, we can spoil it because then we'll be like self-reflective about the methodology and something is lost in that. But there is, you know, I do have some ideas uh, like, like what I just shared. Um, I'll show you something cool. So this, this is a project that came out of 
working on the pop-up school and asking these questions. And what it is, is a game, it's called Codex. And I haven't finished it yet, I want a hundred cards. But it's basically a card game for kids, see the cards. Okay. And every card is different. Like there's a card, there's a card, there's a card. And number one, it's important because they feel like baseball cards. The kids like to collect baseball cards and, you know, there's something somatic about it. But there's three, three types of abstractions in each card. There's color, there's form, and there's what I call flow. Like this one, these are flowing this way, right? And what these, these, this game teaches you is when you play a card, like let's say I play this card and then you play this card and then I find this card and I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to put that there, okay? But it also could go like, there's no one right answer. There's like five or six answers for every card. And so what does it teach kids? It teaches, first of all, this is an abstraction. So you're like, oh, where was that card? So you have a, like a, a set there, a, a perceptual set, very similar to coding. And it teaches, it's a participatory game. And it teaches kids that there's no one right answer but there's multiple combinations of good enough. Yeah, so, so that just illustrates the kind of thing I'm trying to get at in terms of you, you know, this kind of new way of looking, looking at education. So I don't know, maybe that confused you more than... <laughs> it seems very plausible that the... Uh you know, deployments of the proto skills that are involved in uh, implicit metacognitive capacity is very useful for children building up their background uh, ability to be in the world and learn anything. And on the other hand, very useful for uh, adults who want to be more authentic, more whole beings. It's not as obvious how this would apply to specific skill learning, such as learning to read, learning to code, learning mathematics, Right. Are there direct applications of these same insights to particular skill building education? Well, I think the, these cards are uh, directly applicable to learning to code prior to a certain age, you know, because they are abstractions. And if you think of when you're coding, not necessarily at the C level, but if you're doing website design at a certain level, you're looking for widgets that do certain things together and not, and you have to like, in your mind, if you're really good at Squarespace, for example, there's all kinds of things you can play with. Where are they? What do they do? Sometimes you, if you, if you, if you grew up with WordPress when it wasn't so good, you would hack it. You know, you would like take this thing and pretend it was this thing. So it would do something like that with it. And I would say that these cards actually are like that. And the, the other thing is the, the theory of transformative education that we're working with here is that everything in the mind is, the body is antecedent to everything in the mind. So for example, if I say, uh, imagine raising your right arm, and if you pay attention, you can have quite a strong uh, imagination, imaginary experience. And then I'll say, well, what's antecedent to raising your right arm? Well, it's the fact that you've raised your right arm. So then 
you know, we can talk about, there's a lot of neuroscience on this. Uh, if you have inner talk, well, the reason why Google can create this thing you can put over your mouth and it will put on the screen your inner talk is because you have subthreshold micro, your muscles are moving like talking at a subthreshold level. Sometimes the muscles are not even moving, it's just slight uh, electrical signals, right? So everything in your mental space is actually, there's an antecedent in your, in your body. And then mental space is a subthreshold version of that. And if you do guided meditation, some of my advanced students, you can feel the proto thought, you can feel what it feels like when your body's organizing something in a very subtle level. And so given that we know that, then one of the things that I think we don't do well with in education is we don't spend enough time on uh, just the perceptual system. Um, we think that once you're six years old, you know, if your eyes work or you have to wear glasses, then that's done, but it's not done. And I think that that revivifying education through the perceptual system, how many patterns can I hold in my, in my head at the same time? How many forms? How many, uh, you know, flows, flow patterns? Then I think this is transformative of a different kind of mind um, without having to get in all the linguistic, symbolic, abstract, conceptual territory to try to understand how to do it before you learn how to do it. And I think that, you know, one of the things about transformative education that we're, that, if it, that, that, that I think about is that these transformative, really, leaps in human potential, we don't like speech. We don't know how we learn to speak. We, we don't know how we learn to speak as children and nobody knows how kids learn how to speak. And yet it's something we know how to do. And I think that what we're looking at is trying to understand those kinds of leaps we can make that we don't know how to do beforehand and we won't know how we did it afterwards but we know how to do it. And I think it has a lot to do with this core sensory motor perceptual system. That's my guess. And that's like kind of the, the uh, meta philosophy of this kind of pedagogy. I love the example of children learning to speak because obviously one of the critiques that's easy to label against uh, any new or alternative approaches to education is that it's, impractical, wishy-washy, indulgent, things like that. But obviously there's something about it that's extremely reliable insofar as it's how organisms almost always acquire the basic skills that they acquire. One of the things I'm curious about when it comes to the role of perception in education is how essential you think nuance is in perception, right? There's one thing is how many different kinds of perceptions can we hold and compare and experience, but there's also this question of extreme subtlety. How, how carefully can we distinguish? How small a detail can we detect? Um, yeah, what's your take on the role of increasing the capacity for nuanced perception? I think it's the same thing. I think perceptual refinement is moving from coarse grain, which is linguistic abstraction, to finer and finer attunements. And we know this also, for, again, from neuroscience is that you can 
this is why we work with the color field game. You can make more perceptual distinctions than you can name. So even if you named all of those and then you shuffled them up and you say, okay, which, car, which color is this? You can't, it, language is too coarse grained. So since we already know that these, that abstraction at that level is too coarse grained and it tends to generalize, we know this. And so why don't we try to design education that still deals with abstractions, but abstractions that are not coarse grained. So for example, dance is an abstraction. Music is an abstraction. My cards are an abstraction. And, um, you know, I, I, I once heard Zach Stein say that intuition is embodied perception of deep patterns in nature. And that's a refined skill. And so we are trying to teach abstractions and, and um, but the fast track path in them, I think there's more potential further down the line if we learn how to teach abstractions at the sensory motor perception level and not try to come through the linguistic conceptual level because it's already too coarse grained. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? How do I do that? And I think, okay, so that sounds really, really far-fetched, but the real, the real leverage point is, is that education actually works in the opposite direction. You know, we spend all, kids spend all their time in their own internal psychic problems and, they don't actually, and they're on virtual reality, they actually don't pick up the nuances of the world or they don't, you know, they don't live in their sensory motor system. Um, they kind of bypass it. And I think a lot of spiritual practice is just a completely bypass, um, you know, just just the perception and the participation in the, in the world. So, um, yeah, so I think that, that that's, that's a um, profitable experiment to be running. Like what, what is abstraction that's not these other conceptual abstractions? And we know like great mathematicians, they don't relate to math. They relate to math in this very object oriented way. Like they have this very sensory motor intuitive way of what, relating to math, not the way most math teachers think that what math is. So, yeah, so um, I think it's universalizable. And I think that, you know, I think it's very hard to say this today because you can talk about indigenous people, but are there really any, you know, just there's no not very few non-contact people around and, and their habitat is enclosed. and. But, um, you know, a lot of the things that indigenous people learn or, you know, humans have been successful survivors in very complex and precarious situations. And we survived by having this other kind of abstraction, being able to abstract in this other, in this other way. So that's what interests me. And I think, I think, yeah, it's a profitable, endeavor to move in that direction, uh, simply because we already know that language and these other kind of abstractions are, 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 are limited 
and and perhaps of being exhausted. So I don't know. When you look back at your own uh, history and experience of being in schools and educational institutions, what do you think worked? What didn't work? You know? Yeah. What, what did they get right when you were in school and what did they get wrong in terms of educating a Bonnie? <laughs> so this is interesting because it's not a neat usual story. So I went to, you know, my parents were blue collar workers, Catholics in a town where the, you know, the men worked in the factories, the women worked in the telephone company and every community, every like neighborhood had a church. So we were French Canadians. We went to the St. Anne school and the Polish people uh, went to, I forget what that uh, church was. The Italians went to St. Anthony's, you know, there was, there was, um, and we all went to parochial school. Now, when I was in second grade, they brought in the abacus or third grade. And I was teaching the abacus because the nuns didn't know about it, know what it was. And then in sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I taught the science and math courses to my own peers. I was the AV girl because I could, the only person who could learn the uh, electronics. And so I always thought of that as being an impoverished experience, but actually, I think that it might have had some benefits to it. I went to a pretty good high school. It was also a, a regional Catholic high school, but I think it was at the time better than the public high schools. Yeah, I played a lot of sports and um, you know did well in school, but I think that foundation of um, knowing that the nuns didn't know what they were talking about and, and always wondering, well, okay, this is this is only what is being offered me. There's there's always something more. Uh, there's there's always um, this is not the final thing. Um, there was kind of a contextualizing of what was being taught. And then when I went to college, I went to a very good college, and um, you know had similar experiences. A lot of people doing college is very confusing because I always felt like I always felt like. As I told my college professor on the lawn the day we graduated, my philosophy teacher, I said, I said, you know, my experience here is that there's a sorting process, you know, like you're sorting out the wheat from the chaff. And I'm like, but what's getting sorted is not what you think. Like I was in pre-med and I saw like the, the people who were the best at like being intuitive and empathic with people and would make the best doctors, they got sorted out of pre-med. And everywhere I looked, it was like, it was the people, cause you know, I went to a college where everybody that went to that college, except for people like me, had gone to boarding school or prep school. And they already came to college thinking the whole idea of college is to game the system. So I didn't really understand what was going on at first. And so like, I, I understood that there was like this game that was going on that I didn't know how to play, but it wasn't the game of like people going and learning things. And, and, and later on, I realized only later on, uh, many years later, especially with a lot of the books on higher education today, did I realize like the professors were playing a game also. So it wasn't just the kids 
trying to gain the system. But, and so I remember being in college and really trying hard to learn, but I always had this feeling like I was in the matrix and I was too naive and too parochial to understand what was going on. And so I think, you know, people who know me or if you know my place in these different educational communities, I think that's an experience that maybe uh, helps people understand my relationship to a lot of programs or other, other schools. But yeah, so that was my education. I, went, I, I got a, a grant to work at Princeton in neuroscience. And then I got a grant to um, be in a PhD program under National Science Foundation grant in Berkeley. That didn't work out because again, I was like, I was serious about education and science. And all we did all day in the lab was like compete for status and the, the, the game that was being played, I still didn't get it, you know, I didn't. And so, um, I, uh, and so, so that didn't work out. And then I left that program and entered a PhD program at uh, UC San Francisco, San Francisco State University in philosophy. And for my thesis, I was in the philosophy of science program. And for my thesis, I was trying to write, I was trying to argue that the speed of light was perspectival. I didn't say it that way at the time. And I was young and I was like, like filled with ideas. And yeah, I was in over my head. I didn't have enough science to argue it on the scientific side. And uh, I didn't have enough. There was not enough it was just these wild ideas I had. So, so um, yeah, so I, I, you know, so then I didn't, I didn't finish that program. And that was kind of the end of my, my formal, my formal training, but yeah. That sorting procedure interests me because a lot of people obviously move through the educational system with a conscious or half conscious understanding that what they're trying to do is, position themselves well for social advantage in the future. And that's a very reasonable thing to want to do. So when a person is thinking about new educational systems, does that need, does that desire and drive in people need to be accommodated? Do we have to be able to set up new educational facilities that also do position people really well socially? Or is there something about that whole perspective that is inappropriate to human education generally and the world historical moment? Well, that's a really big question. Um, <clears throat> and I don't want to get into all the research I've been doing on, uh, uh, there's a really good book by Brian Kaplan called The Case Against Education. He's an economist, I think at George Washington University. He's been in education his whole life by his own admission. And he's done very well by it. But I think that the university system has some qualities of that, that young people need. And that is what I would call young people need to encounter other young people that are different than them. They need to bump into, you know, it's a little different now because when I grew up, my community was so parochial. And I think that the kids, other kids at my school, their first experience of bumping in and encountering other people was in prep school. So they had already kind of gone through that and were more interested in status and 
and uh, social status by the time they got to college. Um, so I think there is um, a need for kids to do like outward bound experiences or um, travel around the world with a group or get on a boat and go and do something or, you know, to, to they, there's this initi initiation amongst your peers that um, needs a certain that time frame uh, to happen, whether that is best handled in, you know, an educational institution that has a lot of other incentives and um, a lot of, you know, financial constraints and burden. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's the, maybe the easiest way to do it. And I think that what happens is those programs get so sophisticated in universities today that they don't actually mirror the real world anymore. So for example, I had a friend who went to Georgetown University to get his PhD, he um, got a scholarship, uh, he got partially scholarship or something to go through anyways, he came out with a huge amount of debt. And he was very confused because during his two years in that program, he worked with Vaclav Havel, he went to Tibet and worked with uh, some people, you know, in a monastery system or some human rights groups. He had all these experiences that gave him the impression that he was doing really well and that he deserved a six-figure salary when he got out. And what he realized afterwards is the reason why it cost $200,000 to take that course at Georgetown University is because actually paying Vaclav Havel's people to take in their people. I mean, basically a lot of that expense is giving you the impression that the world is like this and you're a talented and valuable person in that world. And when you get out, you just, that's not, that's not the case. He didn't learn how to do anything. He paid for the experience of having himself, being able to experience himself as doing stuff beyond his wildest dreams. So, so yes, there's a, there's something, there's a period, you know, I'm thinking of Thomas Bjorkman's Eskadat Foundation, where he has young people go to the island and encounter each other. But there's not a lot of else going on except intimate encounters with other people. And the university system, I don't think, I, I don't think it can be a place where that happens. And of course it does happen, but I think that the systems and the structures uh, and the design that they place around that are in the, in the wrong direction. So for example, when I went to school, like at what, what it, when the, uh, what is it called? Those, those, those groups that frats, when the frats had pledge week, You'd come home and and there'd be a drunk guy masturbating into your into the drawers of your your your, your clothes. And you'd be like, you know, I mean, there's an encounter with the real world, right? I mean, I don't think they do a good job at yeah at structuring what those encounters are and what the potentials are are in that stage of people's lives. My first. My first week in college, you have to understand, I mean, I'm older than a lot of people listening, but I was very parochial. I, my mother never let us 
stay at another person's house overnight, okay? And my first week in college, as a freshman, we had to go a week earlier. They, the, these guys from the frat, because the, one of the women in my school, she had gone to a, a boarding school and her boyfriend also went to that school. They came into my dorm. They picked me up out of bed while I was sleeping and they carried me around the camp campus. It was like, welcome to, welcome to real life, you know? I mean, I wasn't really traumatized by it. I was like, what is going on? This is like, this is like insane, you know? But I was very athletic and very combative. So I wasn't like traumatized by it. But, you know, I think these, these, these experiences that happen in college are not necessarily conducive to conducive to skills that you need or that make a contribution to society. Do you think the existing educational system can move beyond the limitation imposed by the way that the bureaucracy makes decisions? Like how much of the inability of an educational system to provide a more apt, more authentic, more generalizable human education comes from um, just the way the administrative management bureaucracy is laid out and the way they come to decisions, right? Is, is the system that we have for doing that capable of creating the educational systems we need, or will it inevitably impose a limitation just based on how it approaches decision-making? I think it leans more toward the negative because I think that more and more you realize that even university professors or high school principals or, or teachers in the university feel the pressure not to deliver the kinds of um, education and or to have the kinds of pedagogical relationships they want with their students. So even when that person is trying to deliver something else. I think the structures de-incentivize them. And I think for the most part, yeah, there's, there's working with my, the graduate school. I know Bruce Alderman sees a lot of the same pressures. Um, if you're behind the scenes and you're looking at what the Office of Higher Education think is in the right direction, it's completely, I don't know if it ever was worse, but it certainly is not in the direction toward transdisciplinary uh, studies or, or kind of um, critical thinking. Um, my students that come, many of my students that come to the master's course um, don't know how to read. I mean, and they all have their you know, college degrees and some of them are really big executives and powerful people. Some of them were judges, but they don't know how to read. They don't know how to write an argument. It takes a lot of discipline to slow them down. Uh, and yeah, so there's something I think that's not, that's not, not happening um, either at the intellectual level or the skill level in terms of contributing to society or the human development level in terms of being like a critically reflexive, empathic, responsible person. Um, 
Yeah, it seems to be in the wrong direction. <clears throat> I'm curious what you think the, um, the role of how the self is conceived uh, plays into all of this. Like if we were to um, think of the self as a more extended ecological phenomenon, what difference would that make to educational procedures? Yeah, so this is a big part of the pop-up school. And, um, um, you know, the problem with education is that the self is fragmented. So this, the, the, there, and, and there's all these very strict boundaries, right? So the teacher has to send the kid to the counselor or the psychologist. It, this is not allowed to be processed by the teacher because she doesn't have the expertise or the skill um, to be, a, in, in many cases, a human being to this student, right? So, um, so I think that uh, the, the there's not so there's this tremendous fragmentation. It happens in work too, you know. In roles in work, you people are allowed to to do things to each other that are not allowed outside of like work roles and stuff. So there's a real need, I think, to have an integrative understanding of what it is to be a human and what is to be in relationship with another human being. And that that takes priorities over all roles. But what you see is once a teacher becomes that role, even if she wanted to break through, the, the, the penalties are huge. The pen, and, and plus, the society is paranoid. Like, God forbid you, you, know, you put your arm around a teenager of the opposite sex as a teacher. I mean, pe you know, these people are hyper, hyper sensitive to these strict boundaries. And so <clears throat> I, I teach a lot of teachers when they go through my master's course and they are astounded to learn, you know, they don't know anything about recent understanding of how the human develops or how the self develops or what the core self is or how identity formation, they, they, they don't, haven't learned any of that. If they have, it's old like 1970s psychology books, right? They learn, they learn, it's, it's very old, the pickles jar, you know, they've got like this really old fashioned pickles or something. So there's not a, there's not an upticking of what we already know. And since we already know this, then why do we continue to do what we do? Uh, yeah, um, I had a student, she was a um, third grade teacher. Um, she was in my master's course and the story she would tell about like, she taught in the school, they were, they were underprivileged and right next door is a, is a very, privileged school and her school, all the kids live on these streets and these like townhouses. And in this school, they live next to parks. So she took her students on a day trip to the park. And some of the kids had never, like it was a transformative experience for these, these third graders uh, because some of them had never been in a park before, never sat by a, a brook. And she got penalized because the parents complained because their kids came home like they were all upset or 
you know, or excited or whatever. And she got penalized and told never to do something like that again. And it was so disheartening for her, you know, like, like she loves her students, but even this was way beyond, like she could have taken them. She said, I could have taken them to the mall. They take them to the mall all the time. But those kids are not supposed to go to the park. When you look around at individuals who impress you as being whatever you think intelligent is and being potentially of use to whatever you think society is, good people, people who have had some kind of success, um, do you see any commonalities in them? Do the people who impress you in terms of their understanding have any general themes in their developmental or educational background? know if their backgrounds are the same it seems that they're all different but I think there's a general orientation they have to whatever their relationship with it could be humans animals children old people people in power people not in power and it's their ability to uh talk to the essential being that's in front of them, you know? So um, I'm reading this great book by John Gall called um, Hit by Low Flying Goose and Geese. And he's a pediatrician for a long time. And it's a, it's a, it's a fun little book. And he talks about how like people always think that these young children are either being really bad or being paranoid or schizophrenic. And he just takes them for face value. Like, like this one little girl, she didn't want to wear clothes and that was driving the mother crazy. So she, the mother brought the kid into the pediatrics saying, is there something wrong with her? And he said, no, he, he says to the little girl, you don't have to wear clothes if you don't want to. And the, girl was seen like he entered her reality and then so she went home and after one day she realized okay i want to wear clothes now again and so we're always fighting against the transformative potential that stands that is right in our face all the time everything we do most people work against these laws of nature that are inherently powers of transformation and same with horses you know like basically if you're teaching a horse to do dressage you're trying to teach a horse to do extremely beautiful and graceful ballet right and so most people start by making the horse nervous like it doesn't make sense to make the horse what why don't you work with the calming and enjoying and playing everybody knows play is a better environment to learn. But do we make our educational environments playful? No, like we know all these things. And so for me, what these people have is the ability to trust that the there's an evolutionary potential that is wanting to, is there. And my job is to notice and reflect it back and be with it. And, and uh, there was a person who just had a, a conversation with John Viveki, and he's a psych 
philanalyst, I guess. And he was working, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm just going to tell you the story as if it's this simple, but he was working with a woman who had a very bad history of abuse. And at one point he was on the phone with her later on in their relationship. And he was feeling like my job is to keep her from committing suicide. But then all of a sudden he entered into this space with her about what it must be like to be in such a bad position that you want to commit suicide. And he stopped fighting with it. He didn't encourage it. And this was the moment of healing for her. Like, because he allowed the, the process that was already transforming in her, he accompanying it, he didn't fight against it. He didn't try to fix it. Um, my, one of my students said to me, she has ha had had bipolar disease for a long time and very high functioning. And she said, you don't pretend we're not who we are, but you don't think we're broken. Right. And so the question is, is like, why is this, why is life presenting itself to me in this way? In the pop of school, we define wisdom in a kind of sophisticated way. But the whole idea is that we say, everything seen perfectly is loved. And so if, I, if I'm in a relationship with someone and, and I don't have this natural love and compassion and enthusiasm for them, then it's my job to understand more and more of their context because that's what's preventing me from seeing them perfectly. And that's kind of like what I feel in people that are extraordinary, like, like they're not making, they don't see through rosy colored glasses. That's not the point. They see it perfectly. And the context is, is so rich that it just naturally brings out a relationship of love for the other. And so, so those are, that's another kind of guiding principle in, you know, and kids, I think, get a bum end of the deal. Like, if they're complaining, chances are there's they're, they're, they're hurting or there's something wrong. They're not just, you know, but we don't attend to them that way. We, and, and I'm not saying to make everything rosy because that's usually a distraction. I'll just give them something to eat or buy them another toy. That's, that's not addressing their reality from their context, right? And if I don't understand their context, then I can't see them perfectly. Is there a difference between the principles of education and the principles of healing? I think there's a huge difference in an approach that emphasizes potential, an approach that emphasizes uh, pathology. At the end of the day, the methods, the, the embodied experiences probably are the same, but I think the framing is a, is, can be a, make a, a massive distinction. And one of the things I'm doing in my work is there's huge amount of really, really good contemporary work on trauma, Diana Fosha's work on transformance, Dan Brown's work on the three pillars of healing, but there, um, Alan Shore's work on um, affect regulation and the origins of the self, but they're all from a, uh, a, 
framing of pathology. And what I'm trying to do is abstract from that a framing of potential rather than pathology. Because I think I, I call it something I, I, I talked with Greg Henriquez, I call it epistemic leakage. Because even if your framing of trauma says in it a hundred times, but there's nothing wrong with the person and everybody, you know, it still has epistemic leakage that there's something wrong with you. And so whenever you're in a relationship, a pedagogical or any relationship, there's what you say, and then there's the message you're giving, right? So to make a caricature, like spiral dynamics, can be a caricature, a stereotype, but you can say a thousand times, well, it's the whole health of the spiral, but the model itself says, you're lower, you're more primitive, that's its epistemic leakage. And so I think that when we design these practices, and the same thing with mindfulness practice, if mindfulness is supposed to make you more embodied, don't call it mindfulness, and don't start with, put your attention on the breath. Because already you're saying the mind is privileged. So I said, what does it feel like to breathe? It's a huge difference. I want to talk to the body as the body to investigate the body. If I'm doing embodiment practices, I don't want epistemic leakage. And so a lot of problems with pedagogy is that we are, we're signaling counterfactuals to what we're saying. And it's, it's, a, it's a problem all the way through education. For example, um, you know, Keegan, and if you work with adults and organizations, it's really hard to get them to collaborate. And it's, it's like a fifth or sixth order con uh, consciousness. But they show like young children before they go to school, they, have more, they, they are natural collaborators. And then they go to school and you teach them that there's one right answer. And if you help somebody else get it, then you're cheating. So you, you condition a person like that for 30 years. Of course, it's then going to be hard to get them to be collaborators because you have to have the metacognitive skill to deconstruct the conditioning. And my point is like, why put that there in the first place? And then derive this big theory of like how, yes, you have to be metacognitively sophisticated to decondition your, your, your schooling. That's why it's up there in the fifth order consciousness. But if it wasn't put there in the first place, it would just draw the natural talent. So I think in terms of education design, there's this notion of, of epistemic leakage and we have to, or performative contradiction, and we have to be very careful that the signal, the methodology, the embodied practice of teaching signals what we're trying to teach. Again, everywhere you look, that's not the case. So those are, that's another principle that I think is, is, yeah, is really important to, to control as educators or to, to design into an edu education policy. A lot of this is timeless in the sense of uh, figuring out what are the skills and principles and approaches that 
cause the structure of a human being, which has been roughly constant for quite a while now, to be able to engage itself in a more dynamic, more authentic, more wisdom-oriented context. You also think about what the immediate or near future requires. Like when we're thinking of principles of transformational education, what's the role of that in saying there's an anticipation of the upcoming niche? The next couple of generations might have particular challenges and particular qualities. And how are we preparing people who are coming up now to be ready with the skills necessary to approach that particular world that's coming, even though we don't know its exact constraints? Yeah, so, I mean, if I do like future visioning, it's all guesswork anyways, you know, but I think that in the near future, what we're looking at is uh, uh, stratification of society that's been unprecedented since the, the, uh, post, the post-war era or the colonial, well, the post-war war area, era. And what I mean by that is in the past, you know, societies were stratified because they didn't bump into each other. If you read David Graeber, that's really fascinating about all the ways they kept each other separate and did different things. But I think even though we all bump into each other on the internet, I think that there are a lot of experiments that are happening in many different places that are kind of like alternative worlds. Uh, Donna Haraway talks about this. Um, a lot of these alternative worlds are happening with people who have already been marginalized. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff happening in Appalachia, for example, that are small and you don't get on Twitter. So I think that in the near future, so so the way that works with education is that I think that like there's small groups of people that are homeschooling. There's a lot of information and support groups for people to homeschool. I think there's going to be a lot more experimenting happening. And so, so when you say, what should education do to prepare for that world? I think that there is a, a real opportunity to make a community built around, very similar to like what Waldorf and did, Steiner did, or what Maria Montessori did, or Orobindo, or is to build a community around like an educational approach. That is again, and this is kind of like goes full circle, circle in my life that becomes parochial again. Um, but that it's in its parochialness, it's the size and it has enough uh, um, feedback and conversation so it can learn. And um, I, I see that as <clears throat> not only a potential, but I see that that is that is happening some, some of it in local communities, some of it in, in online communities like the synthesis school. And, and so I find that that's hopeful. I, I think that's, that's kind of a hopeful scenario because I think that there's a possibility that if the larger system fails to stabilize itself or to perform a function in society, then people will look to these schools as seeds for maybe larger initiatives or, uh, or not, you know, I think, yeah. So in the near future, I think anything you can do to build up a little school or a pop-up school or a program or, 
look at somebody like Verveke and, and all the all the content that he provides, you know, that's a campus. I mean, he's basically got an online campus. And and I think those are really important initiatives. If you were starting an education system from scratch, what would you um, would you assume were the core curricula? Like in terms of going through schools, are there basic subjects that we're trying to teach as a society that are unimportant? Are there basic subjects we're leaving out? What would be the, you know, the, the key mandala of subjects that would be generally useful, universalizable for people? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I mean, I did really design the whole master's course at the Graduate Institute. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because there, there are real glitches that you have to come to terms with. Like, for example, my students come, they don't really know how to read. And, and so I'm constantly looking for more popular versions of the truth, not popular you know, stupid things. And we live in a time where slowly you can find, you know, some good writers who know enough science to uh, write something digestible that's also consistent with like contemporary neuroscience. So so the reason why I'm, I'm saying that is like, do, do we then create courses that are, you know, Twitter length sound bites? And I think, I think that one of the so so some of the core some of the core courses is you are developing a mind that like I think reading is important because when people have really strong intuitions or they can have really strong opinions or really high ethical standards how do you share that if you can't make a, a cogent argument? But what's happening is that we have a, a kind of bifurcation. So what is, what is taught as a cogent argument is highly postmodern, gobbledygook, complex intellectualizing. And the reaction to that is like Twitter, Twitter, you know, tweet type language, and we've lost kind of the middle ground, you know, and, and so, so it's, so there's kind of like the battle has two fronts, you don't want it to be that dumbed down. But what goes for academic texts, or, um, you know, when you're trying to do a research thesis, for example, and you go to uh, primary articles, it's really, really hard to understand what's going on because of the way they have to talk about their statistics and their biases and stuff. And so it's this middle area that I think we're losing the ability to read and write in this kind of middle area. And when you see it, like David Cayley, I don't know if you read his books on Ivan Ilyich. I mean, there's when you encounter a writer like that, it's very clear that there's a certain skill that is beautiful and lacking in our culture. So, so core skills would be reading at that level, reading and writing at that level, that middle level. That would certainly be one of it. 
a lot of sensory motor perception and um, dialogue, taking perspectives. But the best way to take perspectives is by reading really good novels, right? Because you're basically inside someone else's mind. So literature for that reason, not literature to present a political agenda, which is more of where literature studies is going now. I think um, to give people a sense of understanding their own body, understanding emotions and sensations in their body and being able to uh, openly discuss that because everyone has the same human body, I think is important. I think um, education that connects people to the natural world and, and in a way that we relate to the natural world as, as prior to ourselves and, and um, that we are less than whole human beings without the natural world, I think is, is crucial. And that's, but that's not a talk about thing. That's more of a kind of wisdom teaching. But I think all those things can be started and taught at very early age. And I think that a certain type of mastery, like Montessori schools, kids, I, I think that we've taken away from children and whole generations, the knowledge that they're capable of doing significant things like if you see people grow up on a farm, uh, they know how to do surgery on their cows. They know how to give medications. They know how to correct breech births. They know, you know, children can do a lot and there's no reason why uh, we have to have the, first of all, the professionalization of these skills uh, in this day and age and the scarcity of doctors and stuff. So everything becomes systems driven by AI. I think what's really important is that kids learn how to build things and how to take care of medical things with animals. You know, I mean, you're not going to put them on humans right away, but to understand that these things are capable, people are capable of doing these skills, growing their food, building their houses, taking care of their sick. This should be a dem dem democratized skill set in the community rather than professionalized in higher academia because kids are smart enough to learn this stuff. You see it in rural areas all the time. You see it in like in China where it's unfortunate, but you know, a lot of times the older girls have to take care of their whole families and their resources not I'm not saying have it be as dire as that, but what I'm saying is, is that children have been robbed of the meaning that can be made and the pride that they can have in understanding their own, their mastery of certain skills. And I, and I think that, I think we actually, by design, rob them of that. I think we do that intentionally we don't want them doing that because we want it in some kind of economic sector somewhere else down the line. So I would say those are the fundamental, some of the fundamental folk, foci focus of education. Nice. I was, uh, you're reminding me that I heard David Cayley interviewing Ivan Ilyich on CBC radio 
uh, in the evenings when I was a boy. And it was probably one of the first times I started to think about the topic of education. Yeah. What's the, what's the best potential role for psychedelics in education? Ah, that's an interesting question because in my model of the education, right? Philosophy, uh, transformative philosophy, philosophy of transformative education, because it is a philosophical uh, <clears throat> work. I have the core self, that's the sensory motor self. We talked about that. Then I have the communal self, which is the self in relationship and, and up to like the Dunbar number or even less. Then I have the cosmopolitan self, which is, you know, take your career anywhere. And then I have the psychedelic self. So it's one of the, the layers of the self. And so all these, these are not a developmental progression. Like the core self has to get better to be a better communal self. And the communal self has to grow more sophisticated to be better at being a cosmopolitan self. And so everything has to, it's like the bigger the tower, the more the the fundamental more prior structures have to grow so it's always recursive but the psychedelic self is a little different because so you have the core self and its function is to organize reality into self other and world and that changes over time like you have self other and world then you go into puberty and let's say you have your first sexual encounter and now who's self and who's the other you know it gets a little murky and then um as you get into systems thinking is the world in me or am i in the world so so this organization of self other and world goes on and should go on and be supported and facilitated throughout the lifespan by some educational process the psychedelic self is that property of the self that deconstructs those parameters and deconstructs those categories. So it's the, you know, the yin to the yang. And so for me, the, the, it is the living mechanism in which the core self can continue to grow because if it couldn't deconstruct its categories, it would just get a category schema and then it would end there, right? You'd get an early childhood schema and then boom, you'd be done. So the psychedelic self is the dynamics which creates not the structures that organize, but the porosity that opens. And that's a necessary thing. And for humans, it seems like it's a much bigger thing because even way late in life, you can have an insight of like, oh my God, I never thought of that that way before. Or I'm not talking about like Alzheimer's when you're actually losing it, but, but some of these categories, when you become like a grandparent and you start to revisit, wow, why did I think where the world was like that? And this, this decoupling of structures and the, the, the porosity create, creating porousness you know I don't, want, I don't want to say complete loss of boundaries because that's could be hard to recover from but the these phases of loosening of uh the the task of the core self enables then for a new re-schema of self other and world to arise and so without one you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't have growth in the other so and so whether that those are 
mystical experiences or psychotic breaks, temporary psychotic breaks or, or drugs. Seems like some or all of those will get you eventually at some point in your life. Um, hormones. Hormones are psychoactive, right? So at least you're gonna get it, you're gonna get it then. And seems so, like there's an important wisdom around that because I can imagine long periods of human history where conditions were roughly consistent, uh, where it might be a luxury item to explore that capacity. But if we're in a situation where the world around us is changing very quickly uh, within single generations, then we have to be able to update our sensibilities much more rapidly and in a more ongoing way. So it seems like we need to be able to deploy those chemical conditions and whatever their triggers are with greater regularity, but also greater responsibility than we might have in the past. Yeah. And, and also, you know, again, the model of education is the core self is not finished. It should be supported, reflected, talked about, depathologized. Right now, you only talk about these things when you have a pathology. That's why I want to depathologize the language. And then, then, then there wouldn't be like, you know, I tell sometimes tell my students, like, if they're like 50 years old and they take this course is because they're going through something. And a lot of times they've had some kind of like temporary psychotic break or midlife crisis or something. And I'm like, it's just like puberty, you know, except we're too old to change, you know? And so like, it's, it's dumb to have people be so conditioned to like standard and conventional roles. And then in the forties and fifties have to have like these breakdowns or breakthroughs when that could be supported and, and, and be an educational track all the way along the line and, and, and not have it be in a doctor's office, be pathologized, you know, but to be, to look at that as a track in education across the lifespan. Yeah. We must be pretty close to the end. What, what have I not asked you about that I should ask you about? Let's see. Other than further questions I have about drunk guys masturbating in your drawers. <laughs> in college, the fraternities. Yeah, it was amazing. And then in the morning, they'd be all laying on, around the dorms, the women's dorms naked, and they'd be so embarrassed because they'd be like hung over and like, and, um, but uh, I think that, I mean, something you didn't ask me, but I'm glad you didn't ask me because people ask me this all the time. And that is whether I'm hopeful or not, you know? And when people ask me that, I feel, I, I feel like I'm Debbie Downer, you know, if I, if, if I try to take a realistic, um, realistic uh, look at what the momentum that's already in the system, you know, we already have generations in generations, you can't undo a lot of that. And so um, I think we, there, there's, there's some realistic, uh, something realistic about that. But, but where I find the hope is just in these little experiments. And um, I would like to encourage people who are interested in education and are frustrated with the educational system not to try to get ahead of the whole system and fix it, but try to 
organized, organized little educational initiatives around a very small community. You know, I've been teaching for a long time. I used to teach uh, catechism to uh, first and second graders when I was like in fourth grade. And I used to teach, uh, take people on wildflower walks in a biodynamic farm. I mean, there's so many ways in which you can get yourself in, if you're a woodworker or anything, you know, that like, I think that I encourage people to start small initiatives around something that's educational in nature that is like the kind of education you would like to see in the world. I think that makes a great difference. I always come across people who hated school and there was one teacher or one neighbor or one uncle who completely changed their lives. And I think many of us could be that one educator that makes all the difference in the world. And before you know it, you can have small classes. My master's courses were like 15 to 22 people. But before you know it, you've reached out to hundreds and hundreds of students. And um, you don't have to be a licensed educator to contribute in that way. So that's, that's what gives me hope. I appreciate the uh, the, I appreciate your appreciation of these buds, these small projects that people could be involved in without pressuring themselves to try to be on top of everything and reconstruct an entire new educational system. There's something else about the hope question that intrigues me. And again, it's partly timeless, right? Heidegger's calling us to authenticity in our disposition toward death, but there's also these um, destabilizations that are seemingly locked into the momentum of the system we inhabit already. And so both of those bring me to stand before a query around uh, what's the role of grief in education? How do, we, how do we do that more gracefully? And how, how important is it to be able to really emotionally assimilate and move through the opposite of hope so that we can be present in the world without worrying about hoping or not hoping? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> being in the presence of grief or being in the presence of sadness, I, I was doing a, a, a mentorship with a young man and we were working with the horses and it was getting, we we're almost done, I think three or four weeks of mentorship. We we're sitting there and kind of chit-chatting and all of a sudden like, something broke through and, and he was just saying, you know, I'm just really sad. And I'm like, yeah. And we just like, we're in this sadness. But what we were noticing is that sadness is an interesting space. If you take away, like I shouldn't to take away, like he was nervous, he shouldn't be sad or something, you know? And then we had all these really cool insights. I mean, the quality of your perception changes and things kind of slowed down. And so same thing with grief. It's like you don't want to educate grief out of the person. It's again, it's another one of these vibe. The, the, it's it's not only workable. It is it is fertile. I I know some people who are very smart, but their basic personality is the dark arts. You know, they're just with evil and the shadow and stuff. 
And then that's okay. Like you don't have to change people, you know, but in, I have a, I have a system to work with the affects and in, in files, panceps work and grief is a contracted form of panic. Panic is a contracted form of care. So you can work with grief because it's a sign that there's something you've lost, something you really care about. Panic is you, you're, you're worried that you're going to lose something you really care about. And so when you see them as the same affect stream and neuroanatomically, they are the same, they rely on the same cocktails, the same neurochemical paths. You see that grief is part of the connection streams, which include care. And, and so, so it's like, how do you see that? That's the, Deep grief is a sign of deep care and love for something. And you start to see its role in making sure that connection is sustained. And then you realize, oh, that connection is sustained. It's sustained by something called grief. And then I can't lose that connection because it's self-sustaining. And that liberates the experience of grief into the experience of care. I just had a student graduated. She took the course because she lost her son, her 15-year-old son, and was going through exactly this process and trying to come to, she's an amazing person. She admit, she's, a, she's a counselor and a therapist and a healer now, but yeah. So they're never, emotions are never isolated from the potentials from which they grow. And the question is, what is, what is this, this, you know, I'll tell my students, like, sometimes I'll go down to the barn and I don't know, there's a bittersweet feeling. And I just let that feeling wash over me, that sadness, that grief, that pain of the end of the world or loss. And, and it's kind of like a mud bath, you know, like, it's dark and it's muddy, but it's it's it cleans out a lot of toxic energy and 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 uh, it's part of being human. So there's there's everything that is there for a reason, and it's part of our humanity. And if we don't if we are resistant to it, it's because we don't understand its function and, and it, it its generative potential. Well, I'm very happy to say that I don't know whether that's a positive or negative note to end on, but I guess we're going to end this. Thank you very much, Bonnie. It's always a kind of pleasure to be with you, and let's come up with an excuse to hang out again sometime before okay, I have to start something else. <laughs> yeah, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks for asking good generative questions.